Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. Well, last Sunday we began a new series on the life of Daniel, and this is the second message in that four-part series. To me, Daniel is one of the most fascinating characters in all of the Old Testament. Uh, Hopefully you have your Bible open or your Bible app open to the book of Daniel this morning. And if if you're new to the Bible and you're not quite sure where Daniel is, you can always look in the table of contents and find it. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. Last week we discovered that Daniel and his friends were deported from Judah, which is the southern part of the kingdom, to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar and his invading army. They were then placed in training uh, that was designed to remove their loyalty to God and the vestiges of Jewish culture. They really wanted to try and rid them of that and make them Babylonian. So the easy route for them would have been just to go with the flow. You know what I mean? Just go with the flow. Don't make waves. Don't make trouble. Don't make problems. Just go with the flow. That would have been easy. Uh, When in Babylon, just do what the Babylonians do and don't ask questions. But Daniel's objective was not assimilation. Daniel's objective was obedience to God. And that was in spite of his surroundings and in spite of the great temptation that he faced uh, in the king's court. Remember, he was invited to to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine and party on, Garth. Party on, Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, But Daniel said no, and he he and his friends uh, took a stand. It says in the scripture that Daniel resolved in his heart or he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Whatever that cost him, that was, his, that was his determination. He was just simply determined, fully and completely determined to follow the God of the Bible. He was thoroughly committed to obedience. I said last week as we preached on living a life of distinction that that requires strong character and a determination to do the right thing. Day and night, when you're in public and when you're in private. Living a life of distinction means you, 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 you live out your strong character and you, you determine to do the right thing. And this week we're talking about living a life of, of confidence. Last week we talked about living a life of distinction. This week from Daniel, living a life of confidence. And the second chapter of Daniel opens with the stage set. Daniel chapter 2 verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, the King of Babylon, in these early verses, the scripture tells us that he was disturbed by dreams. He he couldn't get back to sleep at night. He was so troubled. And and there was one dream in particular that concerned him. Well, we know that in the ancient world, dreams were often considered to be shadows 
of future events. And so they put great stock in dreams. And a king's dreams would have significance for the nation, right? Because if the, the, and the interpretation of those dreams would be important so that the king would know how to prepare best for these future events that were supposed, supposed to come. He, he would need to anticipate them or even counteract them if necessary. And so the king summoned a group of, of magicians and uh, experts in dream interpretation. And, and they were gathered together, a special ops team. Uh, they were known for magic and uh, inter- interpreting dreams and that kind of thing. And once they were all assembled before the king, a conversation took place um, with these alleged interpreters of dreams that, that showed these guys just how much trouble they were really in. They, they had no idea when they first were called to the king just how much trouble they were in. With your Bible open, just, let's just watch the dialogue unfold in Daniel chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. The king says to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Well, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. Just tell us what your dream was, and we'll tell you what it means. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Uh Uh-oh. This is troublesome. Because they not only had to give the interpretation of the dream, they had to tell the guy what the dream was. But, he says in verse 6, if you show the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Well, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. Aren't you listening? (laughs) Kind of thing. That's the implication. What's the matter with you? We just said, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. (laughs) These guys were in trouble. And their plea for mercy in the next few verses reveals the seriousness of the danger that they're in. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, Mr. King, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Substitute impossible for that word. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. So he's not just angry, he's angry and very furious. And commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them also. Daniel and his friends, remember, they're in training. They're not quite... uh, graduated from, uh, tr- from training school yet. Uh, they're not f- fully ensconced in the king's court yet. 
but they were to be included. I mean, the king was so enraged, he wanted every diviner, every uh, wise man, every enchanter in the kingdom rounded up and put to death. He was so angry that nobody could tell him the dream or its interpretation. So when the magic experts told the king that his request to interpret the dream was unfair and impossible because only the gods could reveal a dream and its interpretation, they unwittingly set the stage for Daniel's God to do exactly that. You see how God controls the events? And once they admitted their inability, Nebuchadnezzar's internal rage was lit on fire and he exploded in anger. He was so enraged that he rounded up all the wise men, including Daniel and his friends, to be executed. So as a result, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were arrested. But their hearts are so tender and so submissive to God's will, even in those dire circumstances. Chapter 2, verse 14. Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, carries out the orders of the king, and he's the one who was sent to kill the wise men. But when he approaches Daniel in verse 14, Daniel, the scripture says, speaks to him with wisdom and tact. So here's the king, you know, the king's right-hand man, the, the, guy, the guy that's in charge, going and rounding up all of these wise men. Remember Daniel, how old is Daniel at this point? 16, 17, 18? We're not sure, but he's, you know, he's a senior in high school. He's a junior in high school. And, and yet he, he's used by God in, in such, a, such a tremendous fashion. And Daniel speaks to him with wisdom and tact. He doesn't blurt out like a, like a 15-year-old teenager might. He speaks to him with wisdom and tact. He asks the commander for an explanation, and Arioch gives him the whole story. So, given that, and making the most of every opportunity, Daniel seeks an audience with the king, and, and, and I, I suspect persuades the king to give him just a little more time to interpret the dream for him. So what happens next? Verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So after approaching the king and getting a little, buying a little bit of time, miraculously, Daniel goes back to his house or back to his quarters and shares with the other three exactly what happened. And the first thing they do is drop to their knees in prayer. They drop to their knees in prayer and begin pleading with God. They begin to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Their hearts were so tender and so submissive to the will of God. They weren't surprised. They weren't shocked. They weren't out of their minds with fear because they knew that God was in control. They were eager to hear from God. This is such a powerful expression of their spiritual confidence. Let's just pray about it. And they began to seek the mercy of God. 
I mean, their, their, their necks are in a noose. Their lives are on the line. The order had already gone out. The edict had been made that, that all of the wise men in the kingdom should be rounded up and killed because none of them could give the dream and its interpretation. The ink's not even dry on the decree of execution. And these guys are on their knees praying. Incredible expression of confidence in the power and majesty and glory and wisdom of God. Don't you think? So if, if we're going to live lives of confidence, they need to be lives of prayer. If you want to live a life of confidence in Jesus, then you need to live a life that's saturated in intercessory, humble, submissive prayer. If you want to live a life of confidence for the glory of God, then it's got to be a life that's absolutely surrendered to the power of God. And in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the pressures, in spite of the stress, or maybe because of it, we need to live lives of surrender to the Lord. So, so what happened when Daniel and his friends sought the mercy of God in prayer? Well, let's have a look. Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. That night, <laughs> that night, the night that they prayed, the, day, the, the, the evening of, of, of the day in which they prayed and sought the mercy of God, that night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And he said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for He has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep mystery, deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, even though He's surrounded by light. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. So as they prayed, God was revealing the secret to Daniel. He was giving the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, I think, as they prayed. And it's just, notice in verse 19, this very matter-of-fact statement of this answer to prayer. It just simply says, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. This was not a big surprise to Daniel and his friends that God answered prayer. You know, they dropped to their knees and sought the mercy of God and, and began to pray and call out to God for this dream and its interpretation, and, and God answered. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. It's like, okay, we, we almost anticipate this. We expect this because we know who God is. And God is able. He's powerful. We prayed. He answered. That's good enough. It was just a very matter-of-fact statement that God revealed the secret to Daniel. It wasn't a big surprise to him. And you see, when you, when you truly believe God, and, and you walk with God every day, then you're not surprised when He answers prayer. Oh my gosh! I went downtown and I, I, I circled the block three or four times and I prayed that God would open up a parking spot and I can't believe it! There's a parking spot! I, I have no picture of anyone in my mind when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
when we believe God and walk with him daily, answers to prayer are not surprising. And that in itself builds confidence. With life and death hanging in the balance, Daniel's first response was not to panic or call the crisis hotline or start a petition or boycott Starbucks. (laughs) He dropped to his knees and began to pray. So when you're up against the wall and the pressure is really on, you've got your noose in a neck, or your neck in a noose, or noose in a neck, I don't know. You can get creative with that one. What do you do? These guys prayed. Dropped to their knees in worship and poured out their hearts to God. Praise the name of God forever and ever. He has all wisdom and power. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but I'm just going to trust that you're going to do it. Daniel gives all of the credit for all that happened to God for answering prayer. What a marvelous display of worship and what a marvelous display of confidence in who God is and what God can do. Friends, a life of confidence is the supernatural outcome of a heart that is surrendered to God through Jesus Christ. So so let's have a closer look at the secret that's revealed to Daniel. Daniel stuck with the plan and, and started to move forward in confidence that God would prepare the way. So he'd given Daniel the dream and its interpretation, and so Daniel takes the next step with confidence. Verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Don't execute the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I've, I've found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what the dream means. So, from that text, we, we know that Daniel goes to Arioch and announces that he's, he's got the goods. He's got the, the dream and the interpretation. Arioch creates an audience for Daniel with the king. And when Daniel stood before the king, still a teenager, certainly under 20 years of age, the king asks Daniel a very compelling question. On the surface, it doesn't seem to be that profound, but the king asks Daniel in verse 26, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? It seems like just a simple question, right, on the surface. But underneath, I think the king was saying, Daniel, are you able to succeed where everyone else in the kingdom has failed? You? A 17, 18, 19-year-old boy? Are you able to, to do what no one else in the kingdom can do? Talk about the stage being set. Talk about a setup by God the Father. Talk about divine sovereignty and, 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 and creating circumstances that would reveal the glory and power and majesty of God. Oh my goodness! So as these verses show, uh, the answer was a definitive and resounding yes, yes, yes. Daniel is able to do precisely what all of the other wise men could not do in the kingdom. And Daniel replies in verse 27, 
No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. Nobody can do that. And I think Daniel's including himself in that. No, nobody, can, nobody can do this. But, he says in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Amen? He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And he begins his explanation. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries, God himself, showed you what is going to happen. As for me, Daniel says, as for me, why, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. And so from verse 31 on, he begins to unravel what this dream is and its prophetic significance. So it's very clear to Daniel that God is really the only, God is the only one who can do this. This is all about God. This is not about Daniel. This is not about Daniel's significance in the kingdom. This is not about Daniel's wisdom or Daniel's skill or, or his expertise or his lineage or his background or his status in Judah and now his status in, in Babylon. This is not about Daniel. This is all about the all-sufficient, all-powerful, almighty God that they served and whom we serve also. He makes it very clear to the king that this dream and, its and even the interpretation of the dream comes from the God above who reveals mysteries to us. He doesn't take any credit for himself. So Daniel chapter 2 opens with this king having a nightmare that troubled him so much that he gathered all of his smart boys together, all of the dream experts and all the interpreters of dreams, and not a single man in all of the kingdom could reveal the secret of the dream. And he gets furious. But God reveals the dream and its interpretation to a young man from Judah named Daniel. And, and even though his, his life hangs in the balance, even though his neck is in the noose. Even though the blades on the guillotine are being sharpened and he's feeling the pressure of being the answer man in the kingdom, he moves forward with such confidence in the God of heaven. It's remarkable. You, you can't miss it. Daniel is so confident when he goes in before the king to explain the dream. And you know, I got, I got thinking about that this week. I mean, this, this young man is so confident. Where does confidence like that come from? How, how does somebody gain that sort of confidence? What's the source of our confidence in the Christian life? That, that unpretentious certainty, that respectful assurance and that humble conviction. Where, where does that come from? H how do we get that? I, I could use a, a little dose of that. A little bigger dose of confidence, couldn't you? I could use that. Well, I, I want you this morning just to listen to some of what the experts say about developing confidence. We've got a short video on confident living that we want to show you right now. 
Embracing uncertainty requires a high level of self-confidence. Meng, author of Search Inside Yourself and Google's Jolly Good Fellow, speaks of self-confidence in two ways. First, he describes the building up of self-confidence as a practice of accurate self-assessment in the moment. This, he says, can be cultivated with mindfulness. As accurate self-assessment is cultivated, one can then accurately self-assess and become aware in the moment as to what may be needed when uncertainty is present. Meng talks about knowing himself so well that he's able through mindfulness, to sense when he's about to go offline. Since he knows how to reboot himself when he goes offline, read Resilience, he can operate with a level of self-confidence in any situation. Secondly, Self-confidence, Meng argues, requires an integration of feeling like he's as powerful as Mount Fuji and as small as the smallest grain of sand. Okay, stop stop the the video. Come aware in the moment of the self-aware... Come on! Are you kidding me? What's the source of confidence? Well, you know, a lot of people will say that uh, they subscribe to Eastern philosophy or Eastern mysticism or some New Age ideas about being in the moment and having the self-confidence, you know, in the moment. Self-confidence is not the goal here for us. Self-confidence is not the goal. Confidence in the work of God is our target. Confidence in the Word of God is what we're aiming for. Confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is what we're aiming at. And confidence in the resurrection power that that raised Jesus from the dead. That's our goal. Our goal is confidence in God, not confidence in myself. I think we, we walk down a very dangerous trail when we pursue self-confidence, especially in light of what the world has to share with us about how to get that. (laughs) Sorry. Listen to Paul's advice to to young Timothy. It sounds a little different than what we just heard on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, Therefore, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. He's writing also to a a young man in, in the faith. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. 
But I'm not ashamed, Paul says, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, I am persuaded that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is, Paul is convinced that God is able. Paul was absolutely convinced that God is able. He's able to, 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 to bring people out of darkness into light. He's able to save the lost. He's able to, to provide for the needy. He's able to heal those who are distressed. He's able to comfort the, the uncomfortable. God is able. Paul says that he was convinced that God was able. That means that he was fully convinced in his heart and mind that God is able to do what he said he would do. It means that Paul was strong and earnest and firm in the conviction and the the confidence that comes from believing that Jesus Christ saved us and called us, not because of our good works or good looks or good grades, but because of his own purpose and glory. He had confidence in Jesus Because Jesus is the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our confidence is in God and in His ability to to do what He said He would do. Our confidence comes to us through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the core of the gospel. My confidence doesn't come from myself or my status or my bank account. Thanks be to God. It comes through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our confidence comes from. The massive earthquake that rocked the nation of Haiti back in January of 2010 brought with it a tremendous amount of of pain and suffering and destruction. But as is often the case in times of, of, of great trial, there were also stories of tremendous heroism and 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 conquest that came out of that same uh, time period. And Dan Woolley is one of those stories. Dan is a, is a film producer and he was in Haiti at the time of the earthquake making a documentary about starving children in the country. He was inside the Hotel Montana when the shaking started and the building collapsed down around him before he could get to the street. When it was all over, Dan Woolley found himself in the basement of that building. He was on the second or third floor when the earthquake started, he found himself in the basement just encased with, in tons and tons of debris. Uh, but it, it, he, he was trapped there. He only had the clothes on his back, but there was a, an iPhone in his pocket. He thought he was going to die, but more than 65 hours later, he was rescued by emergency personnel. It wasn't Woolley's quick thinking or his iPhone that that make his story remarkable. He earned that distinction because of what he did during those 65 hours and the decisions that he made on behalf of his wife and his young children at home. See, Dan Woolley is a Christian, and he told the reporters after his rescue that he he really thought he was going to die in in that earthquake and in that basement. And so he took the time to think about what he wanted to text his his children. He still had the phone, and the phone was had service. And so he, he, he sent one text, one last text to his family, or so he thought. And he wrote, obviously he's writing to include young children, I was in a big accident. No kidding. I was in a big accident, 
He says, don't be upset at God. He always provides for his children, even in hard times. I'm still praying that God will get me out. He may not, but he will always look after you. God always provides. He will always take care of you. You know, when you're really under pressure at work or at school, when the pressure's on and you feel like the king has declared an edict that you should be killed, or when you find that you've lost your footing in the storms of life and you wind up in the basement somewhere covered in whatever, Jesus is still your life. Jesus is your life. Jesus is my life. And if that is really true, and we really live like that, it doesn't matter where we are, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, we're okay. That's confident living. That's what I think of when I think of living in confidence. That's what I think of when I think of Daniel. Daniel said, well, you know, we'll just pray and trust God confidently. And God responded. So let me say it again. Your relationship with God through Jesus Christ is your life. It it touches and alters every aspect of your existence. It redefines who you are. It redefines your identity. I am no longer just Garth Leno, the poor kid from Edmonton who grew up in an alcoholic home. That might be my background, but that's not my identity. My identity is I am a son of the Most High God, and Jesus Christ is my Savior. That's who I am. Really, that's who I am. So you can't live a life of confidence like Daniel, or like the Apostle Paul, or like Dan Woolley, without a relationship to Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus infuses your life with new meaning and purpose and it it absolutely and completely reshapes your destiny. The work of Jesus Christ on your behalf is your confidence. So your confidence and my confidence will either be found in, 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 in yourself and the world around you and the gobbledygook that it sells about confidence, or it will be found in Jesus Christ and that invisible life of faith. So which will it be? What will it be for you? Which way are you going to go? Whom will you follow? Where will you place your faith? Where does your confidence come from? Let's pray together. Father, we commit this message to you and its contents. We also pray that you, Lord, would bring about the desired end in our hearts. Help us to respond to this word from Daniel and the call to confident living with obedience and a strong desire to live out our lives with surrendered hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.